Welcome to Can I Speak to Your Product Manager, the nitty-gritty with your favorite PMs. I'm Kyle Kolich, VP of Product at Zora. And I'm Lucas Weber, a Director of Product Management at Zora. On today's episode, we have Dave Bottoms, GM and VP of Product at Upwork. And we're going to start off the show by getting to know our guest a little bit through a little rapid-fire game of Ship It or Skip It. What do you want to do? Let's do it. No. No. Maybe. Yes. Yeah, Dave, let me give you a little, little tidbits about how this works. So as a product manager, you know, you, you, your goal is sometimes to dis- decide if a product is good and should be shipped and brought to market or a product just isn't right there and you may need to either rework it, refactor it, or just bury it in the, in the, in the, in the woods. So we're going to throw a couple at you. Uh, you just say, you know, ship it, like it, I, I think it makes sense, or skip it, get rid of it. And I kind of had a theme, a little bit of a theme last time, but it's kind of following up that theme of like gifts, Christmas gifts and whatnot. And a lot of those gifts are on the market. And one I felt interesting was the custom face t-shirts. So a way to give your family a momentum of yourself, your face on it, that they can wear throughout the holidays. Would you ship it or skip it? Custom face t-shirts. I have to say, my three teenage kids would not be caught dead walking around with my face on a T-shirt, so I would skip it. Yeah, all right. That that is that is out the door. Not going to happen. Buried in the sand. Never see the light of day. Okay. Uh, this is for uh, another idea. Uh, it's for your favorite pet out there, and and this kind of followed. I thought of it because of Movember, where where you know men were wearing yeah. you know, mustaches for good causes, and. And one, you know, you know, one thing that your family pet might could use it. So, what about dog mustaches? Mustaches that you could give your 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 favorite pooch. Mm, that's that's an interesting one. I do have a dog who has a large, fluffy mane. I could imagine one of those pink mustaches on the Lyft cars. Yep. You know, good mar- marketing for Lyft. But I don't think my dog would keep a mustache on, so I, I'm going to skip it. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I, I was reading about it, they didn't explain how it prevents the dog from eating it. Uh, it, it said, <laughs> right. like, how do you, how does the dog not just like does this, and all of a sudden it's gone forever? So that's maybe the fine print somewhere. But I will also uh, agree with you that one we we will skip it. The last one I would say, you know, with the holiday season, it's getting darker. You know, we're getting close to the the winter solstice, so light is important. And, you know, a lot of candles get brought into the holiday season to kind of bring up the festive cheer. But some are scented and some are scented sometimes, you know, with typical scents like cinnamon and like flowers and whatnot. But I saw one on the market today, a beer smelling candle. So for maybe your your friend who loves beer, do they want a, a candle smelling like beer? What, what do you think? Now, that's an interesting one because you, you definitely have a market out there that, that buys the scented candles as holiday gifts. Yeah. I gave one to my CEO as well yeah. for a holiday gift. And you got a lot of people that like beer. So if, if you imagine Norm from Cheers always having you know a place close and near and dear to his heart, a, a beer candle might be good for a gift there. So this one, I, I think I would ship it. All right. Yeah. I think that the hops and the smells might be good. Maybe a little bit festive too. The only problem is if it, if it smells like, you know, the bar the day before or the day after, if it has <laughs> right. that beer sticky smell, probably not the best smell, but if it has that, you know, hoppy ale smell, I think it's a winner. So I, all right, we will 
ship that one. <laughs> Sounds like the Venn diagram of people who like scented candles and beer is non-zero is what we're saying. Uh, <laughs> right. We found, we found <laughs> a market. That's the hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. Hypothesis. All right. Wonderful. All right, Dave, we're going to switch gears and uh, get right into the PM power moves where we just d- dive right. right into the, the nitty gritty of PM work. Powering up. Power and so we'd love to hear what's what's top of your mind uh, as a product manager. Oh gosh, top of mind probably right now in December before we break for the holidays is planning. Everybody's favorite exercise. Like, what are we mm-hmm. going to ship next year? What's our roadmap look like? We've just come out of a couple of months worth of OP planning or operational plans, where teams kind of write at a high level in a six-page memo. This is our strategy. This is our executional plan. These are our core metrics that we're going to try and move next year. And this is how we're going to drive the business. My team produced seven different ones. They roll up into a corporate strategy. And we're also getting ready to kind of refresh our three to five year corporate strategy. So the product wow. roadmap feeds the corporate strategy and, and hopefully drives, drives the business growth. I'm glad to have that part of the planning process behind us. And a lot of the teams have gone on and done their their actual H1 roadmaps. We kind of do things at Upwork by half. So you have a first half roadmap and you have a second half roadmap, a quarterly check-in to see how you're doing against your targets. And obviously things change and are fluid during the course of the year, but you know, best laid plans, you, you try and start the year with, with a game plan to go execute against. My friend, Eric Qualman, who's a speaker reminded me of the famous Mike Tyson quote, though, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, especially by him, best, right, right. (laughs) So so best laid plans. Sometimes you need to be dynamic and fluid and be ready to pivot, but it feels good to go into the year with a plan and kind of knowing, knowing what we're going to drive against next year. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And obviously I, I think Many other folks are probably going through very similar exercises, and it sounds like you know that that was an effort, and it sounds like you're glad it's it's past you. But given planning is so important, and obviously having a plan is better than no plan, right? Do you have any sort of ways that you approach the planning process? Because obviously, you know, a lot of folks will be excited about innovation and what they can just you know maybe devote all their time to doing that. But of course, there's the fact that there's tech debt and other things. So are there things that you're you're looking at? You know, you mentioned there's seven different plans and I'm I'm assuming it's not seven different versions, but maybe seven different areas that you're looking at. But again, like, you know, how do you balance let's say the portfolio, right? Such that you feel that the the plan is not only realistic, but also inspiring, but also, you know, takes care of business and making sure everything continues to function. That's a great question. And I think it's applicable both to product leaders who are trying to balance a lot of different teams that are, that are executing in different parts of the business, as well as individual PMs. I kind of developed this framework, if you will, a, a number of years ago when I was at Yahoo and managing an increasing scope of responsibility where I want to take kind of a VC-like approach, a portfolio approach, as you, as you mentioned, in thinking about there are, I, I call it 40-30-30. So if you had your portfolio divided 40% big ideas, big rocks, things that are going to really move the business, but they may be bigger risks, they may be multi-quarter or multi-half kind of projects. 40% of your development time, your capacity is earmarked against those sort of big rocks. 
thirty percent is is against kind of the near term things that you have a pretty high degree of confidence that you can execute against. There may be one at most kind of two quarters. When I was at Meta, we used to call it eighty twenty versus twenty eighty. The eighty percent confidence that you can execute against the plan. They may not have the kind of returns that you get out of the big rocks, but they're things that you have uh, a high degree of confidence in. And then the final thirty percent is really, as you alluded. Just keep the lights on, pay down your tech debt, fix your bugs, leave room in your portfolio for the sometimes unglamorous but necessary work that PMs need to do to kind of polish the the features, fix the the workflows that are broken, fix the features that didn't quite make it on V1 and they need kind of a v, V2 or V3. So 40-30-30 is kind of the guidepost that I give, whether they're people that are managing larger teams or individual PMs. To think mm-hmm. about like balancing your your big swings and your innovation with things that you know you can execute on and not allocating 100% of your capacity because you know you're going to have to fix bugs. You know you're going to have SLAs to maintain. You know you're going to have you know smaller features that need attention. So allocating and actually preserving some capacity for those things that are that are important. Now, you said it was a, a kind of a guidepost. I mean, we, we, we do something similar as well, but... I find that it that that percentage changes a little bit, right? It sometimes you yeah. find like one, you know, part you know, last year at a certain time it was probably more innovation, right? It would almost be like a sixty, right? Or, or you know, yeah. some of the years it's down to thirty. So do you do you notice that too? That you know, it's a good guide, but you do notice that based on the market, based on you know what's going on with you know you have a big bet you want to knock out that that fluctuates. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a guide. It's a starting point. You know, we had one team, for example, that was doing a big tech migration from a, a legacy system to a new system, and it was going to take 18 months. And we said, can we compress that into 12 months? Well, yeah, you're going to give up some some feature development or some things that you want to do, but you're going to get off the old platform a lot faster. So they may have been, you know, 60% in the, in the tech debt pay down mm-hmm. KTLO category. I got another team that is called Upwork Labs that works on, you know, what are the new zero to one things that we could or should be doing? And they, they try and rapidly iterate. They're probably more, you know, 60% in big rocks. What is our next $100 million business mm-hmm. going to be? And they don't worry as much about keeping the lights on for the new business because they're trying to really disrupt the, the, the current business and think about like what's new or what's mm-hmm. next. So the the percentages definitely fluctuate depending on the team and where you are in your your product life cycle. You know, it's a, it's a good starting point. You yeah, know, just right. thinking about those three buckets of work and thinking about you know how would you optimize it. It yeah. might be different, you know, quarter to quarter, but it's a good guidepost that that both encourages the team to take some big swings mm-hmm. and to think about innovating on behalf of customers right. and thinking about you know executional ability to to actually get things shipped. What I hate is teams that, you know, they say, oh, we've got this big new thing that we want to do. It's going to take a year and that's all we're going to do. And if I make that bet or that investment and it doesn't pan out or we put it in front of customers and they hate it, you've sunk everything. So that's why I think that that second bucket of like, what do you have a high degree of confidence on? You've already validated your hypothesis. You, You know, with good confidence that you've sized it correctly and you think it can have an impact on, on, on the business. Those are good counterbalances to some of the bigger, more innovative multi-quarter kinds of bets. Yeah. And, and sometimes that, you know, that, that 30%, the middle one where let's say you, you went big on the 40%, 
and it may didn't work out and didn't, didn't, but that 30% you did work out and you executed on it. You can kind of spin that, right? You can make it actually, that was For the innovative sure. one. <laughs> That's the yeah. one we wanted to go to market and become a hundred million dollar new product line. Yeah. This, this worked out better than expected. You know, we <laughs> executed well. I mean, all teams want to feel like they're making progress, right? Yeah. And yeah. if you, if you put all your eggs in one basket and it doesn't work out, you don't want to feel like, well, we wasted an engineering team six months to, to do it. Sometimes they work out better. Mm-hmm. You know, you have high confidence you can, you can execute on an idea or a feature and bring it to market. And those are the kind of wins that you want to celebrate with your team and say, yeah, we can demonstrate that we can execute and get something in market and it has an impact on the business. So it's just trying to balance your bets. You got 10 bets, four, four big swings may or may not work three in the middle that you have pretty high confidence on and keep the lights on with the, the other, other three, just the things that you should be doing for good hygiene as a, as a PM. Makes sense on the, on the big bats. Cause I'm sure that's where a lot of excitement is. What's your thought about how to fund those, right? So, you know, frequently in a VC portfolio, right? You'd have startups, right? These are generally small units that are highly motivated, you know, driven by a dream, but not well funded, right? And so this is where VC comes in and drops a little bit of cash on there. And usually it's not like, hey, I'll just make one bet, right? Instead, right. Uh, there's a there's a portfolio again here, like you're going to bet on 10 and you're hoping one will will fire, right? That's a little extreme, but it depends on which domain you're in. How do you see those big bets from your side? Are you more, you know, because you mentioned maybe four big bets or something, are you more of a, let's take a few, but staff them well, or do a, do a lot and staff them a little bit and just see which one makes progress so that you can kind of distribute the risk and, and at the same time, try a whole bunch of different things out? Yeah, it's a really good question. And again, I love frameworks and try and put things into frameworks that can be applied in different situations. If I'm a VC and I'm t- t- making a bet on, you know, the team or the space or the opportunity size, I kind of think there are these three buckets. There are growth teams that live and die by optimizing a current product. And I call those metric movers. You have a very clear metric in mind. You're going to try and move that metric by making the, the product or the feature that much better. These are the things that kind of pay the bills. You know, it's like ultimately you, you want to be constantly tuning and constantly getting better and teams that are aligned with actually moving a metric and demonstrating that, that they have features, capabilities, even innovations, but when they're anchored on moving a particular metric, that's one approach. And and like I said, a lot of growth teams tend to kind of operate that way where they're eyeing a metric they want to move and they try a lot of different things to try and move that metric. The second bucket is what I call customer requests. And this happens a lot in the enterprise space where you're sharing your roadmap, what you're going to go do. You're listening to your customers. They inevitably tell you what you're lacking what you could be doing or what you should be doing. And if you don't listen to your customers, eventually they lose faith that you'll be able to deliver for them. So, and eventually maybe they hate you if you never take their their advice and put it into your roadmap. And then there's this innovation bucket that I call customer delight, that if you don't delight your customers, you won't inspire passion and loyalty in your in your users. So you got metric movers, customer requests, and customer delight. Can you find features that have all three? The, uh, the answer to that is really no, because metric removers are rarely delightful and rarely requested by customers. 
customer requests rarely move metrics or are delightful for a broad set of customers. They may fit one particular customer's niche or need. And delight features, these things that you think are innovative, they rarely move metrics. You may not even have the right metric to measure it. And by definition, those delight features are, are generally not requested. But great products really find ways to combine all three. They don't necessarily need to have all three in a balanced way, but you're thinking about how do you delight? How do you satisfy a particular customer need? And what's the metric that that you're trying to move? And if you think about those kind of three ways to balance thinking about, you know, a whole product that you want to deliver, you know, they're not messy, they're not mutually exclusive, but you, you, you can think in kind of creative ways about like, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Who are you doing it, building it for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the interesting approach. It feels like the customer delight things feel like they're kind of a, ahead of the, you know any ideas that customers have, right? You're, you're exploring the future with the metric movers more around a more mature product and, and advancing that. And the customer delights just shoring it all up to make sure that it's fully featured as sort of based on customer feedback, because now they're using the, the, the feature of the product and, and they know that there are certain gaps, right? That That's a very interesting way to, to look at it. And how does that then, I guess, mesh with the forty thirty thirty? Right? Is that is that kind of the three bucket approach that you'd uh, you know only put on the forty, or because it feels like the the metric movers right would fit straight into that middle thirty, where where yeah. you're just trying to to surely deliver something because you probably maybe even drive it through OKRs, right? Objective key results because you know you've had a certain metric and now you want it plus five, 10, 10, 30%, whatever it is, and the team just goes after it. And so like any insight there, how these frameworks mesh? Yeah, I think you can overlay them. And to mm. your point, the the metric mover tends to be the the near term thing that you think will 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 move and you set an OKR and you have a high degree of confidence that 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 it, it will move as a result. So that that's the thirty percent bucket. I think yep. the customer delight piece really fits in the forty. Like what what is something that you have a hypothesis on that you that there's a market need. But you don't necessarily have that hypothesis validated by a customer. They're not telling you what they want. One of the people I would consider a product mentor, Adam Nash, he was a VP of product at LinkedIn, and I worked for him at Dropbox for a while. He wrote a great blog post that I'll point people to. I think it's just adamnash.com, but talking about building for passion and emotion. When you're in that delight bucket, you want to think about like what is going to what is going to motivate someone to feel really delightful when they're using your product or your feature? And it's hard to quantify like a product that you love. You know, there's not a metric that's associated with that, but it's more of like a feeling that you want to continue using it. And, you, and, and a lot of great products are kind of solving for great experiences that you want to come back to and you want to use again. They can be utilities and tools that help you get a job done, or they can be things like, you know, the iPhone that you've got in your pocket right now, right? It's like you you wake up and you 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 don't obsess about using it all day, but you couldn't imagine leaving home without it, right? Mm. Those are the kinds of things that I think fit in that delight bucket where you really need to look at like what is going to inspire somebody, what is going to help them either accomplish a task or really be something that they want to use, 
you know, a lot of products you kind of have to use. I think a lot of enterprise software is in that in that bucket where the company chose it. This is the way we do video conferencing or this is the way we do accounting or, or Salesforce. But really, a lot of great consumer products are things that you just have a passion for. Yeah, I think you're right. With, B, with B2B, you do get a little bit of a captive audience. But, you know, I think, with, with, you know, what we've found, too, is that if you do build something passionate, they, they are passionate. We, you know, we, we have sessions where, you know, customers will come to our advisory groups and, and give us feedback because they have passion of something we built. So, but it's, you're right. It's a little different for B2C. The B2C is something where, you know, there's, there's more of a glowing passion that, that they're, they're coming back to it. You know, they're not as forced into it, I guess, with the B2B side. If there's money coming out of your wallet, you know, to pay for it, you you really want to have yeah. something that 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 you feel like either solves a problem for you or that you're passionate about using. So, That's right. but you're right. There there are plenty of enterprise products that do a great job with pleasing their customers by building things that that are solving pain points that they have. Solving the problem that they're they're working on made their life easier. Let them. Be able to come home early, at, you know, instead of working late because you did something that made it, made them, you know, close their books faster, or, you know, chase down something that you know they, they were working on for hours and you can get it done in a few minutes. So there, there's, there's some passion there. You know, there's some passion where you can for make, sure. uh, you know, be happy about the product. Excellent. We covered kind of different frameworks to thinking about portfolio management of how you allocate, you know, product management resources for a roadmap, right? For for an annual look at the plan and maybe even something that might drive a three to five year plan ultimately. And we took a look at a different framework for thinking about, you know, how you actually work with the teams between those metric movers, those growth teams, customer requests, and customer delight as a different framework to take a look at. Is there any other insights that you have given those frameworks? Do you combine it with anything else to really then execute on that and, and, and where you found that to, to really fire and, and, and be successful? I mean, clearly you're using the frameworks, so they must work. Yeah, I use the frameworks as a, as a guide. And mm-hmm. to Kyle's point yep. earlier that, you know, it's not hard and fast. You need to go 40, 30, 30, but it's, it's a starting point framework. I also like having product principles and really thinking about or challenging product managers to say, what are your principles? What are the things that you won't compromise when you're thinking about a whole product or even a new feature? And some of the principles that I've used in the past to quote Henry David Thoreau, if you want to get very like literary here, simplify, 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 that I always find the good rule of thumb is that if there is a, a problem that you're trying to solve for a customer, the simplest way is often the best. If you can cut steps out of a workflow, if you can cut complexity out of a product that they, they need to use, that's a good kind of principled approach to product management, that if you can simplify something for a customer, you can probably make it better. Another one that I love as a principle and higher order principle is obsessing about your non-users. Who's not using your product today and why? Because you, you always have a total addressable market and you have some share of that market. So those are your customers. And we tend to over-index on the people that are using our products today. They're the ones with the pain points that we're trying to solve. But for almost every product I've ever worked on, and I've worked on some big ones at scale, like the Yahoo homepage, there are still plenty of users that are not using your product. And why not? 
And why are you not meeting their particular needs? So understanding and having insights around your non-users is important counterbalance to understanding your customers, the people that are using your product today. I, I guess one other kind of last principle is thinking about there, there's a there's a book that we all read at Upwork by Bill Carr called Working Backwards. And the working backwards model was employed by Amazon and refined over many, many years. But it's really saying, let's look at the metric or the output that you're trying to drive toward and try and deconstruct that. What are the input metrics that are influential in or, or leading indicators for whatever your output metric may be? So a lot of times companies will say, oh, we want to grow our revenue by X percent. Well, what are the, what are the inputs that feed into growing revenue? Or what are the inputs that feed into growing? In our, in our business, we look at active contracts when freelancers and clients come together and they create a contract to work. That's a predictor of revenue. So we might look at that as an output. But what, what are really the underlying input metrics? And then once you know kind of what the model is in your metric movers, it makes it much easier to write good OKRs. And then product teams have the flexibility to innovate around what are the projects that you think are actually going to move those, those particular metrics or what are the places and ways or the features and functionality that you think ladder up to the input metrics that ultimately move your, your output metric. So those are a couple of examples, I guess, of principles that I've employed or developed is, is in the arsenal over time. But any PM can kind of write a set of, you know, three to five principles at the, at the outset of a project and say, these are the kinds of things that I won't compromise on. Or these are the kinds of things that when I need to make a trade-off decision, I'll look at my principles and say, what am I, you know, what do I want to hold true? And what do I always want to ensure I'm thinking about from a, a particular lens? No, I, I, I like those. I like those having those strong principles. I mean, there's a lot of times, you know, as a PM, your decision either to, to make a compromise, right, to do something, to get something out faster. But then if it, if it yeah. violates the other principle of making it simplify, simplify, you actually made it harder for the customer. You, you know, the compromise to get it out faster ends up hurting, right? Because now right. You know, the customer's not going to use it. You end up getting more non-users, which actually helps you learn more about it. But the principle kind of helped drive the decisions to keep moving in a certain direction and be able to validate what you want to do with the market. So that's that. I like I like that idea of having the, the you know, principles that PMs have and just kind of keep following that as much as possible. You reminded me of another one. I think is a program management kind of principle, right? Is like there, hmm. you can either have it fast, you can have it be easy, or you can manage the cost. But you know, pick you pick your yeah. two. Any two, right. so you can't have all three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, you see that a lot. This this kind of trifecta, whether it's you know, project management, right? It's the typical one, but obviously that impacts us as a foundational item of you know how quickly can we build it, how how much we can build, and given our team. So that's the the typical you know timeline, scope, and and resources question. But now now extended a little bit further as well. Awesome, awesome principles. Perfect. Dave, thank you. This was, I think, very, very insightful. Any last questions or, or insights to share with our listeners? You, you know, we covered a lot of ground. And I think I think the only th the, the last thing I would say is being a product manager is one of the hardest jobs on the planet, but it's also one of the most rewarding because you are the agent for your customer acting on behalf of customers or users, however you think about them. And you are the glue between the cross-functional teams. You may not manage a team of people yourself, but you are managing the life cycle of a product and bringing people along with you on the journey. 
So the partnership that product managers have between their engineering partner or their design stakeholder or product marketing or analytics or data science, it's really a hard job to kind of manage all of those different perspectives and build it into a, a cohesive, not only product vision, but an actual roadmap that you can execute against. So keep plugging away and building great products is my takeaway or my share and, and keep working to refine your craft because you never reach the, the full potential of what a product manager can do. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to, to learn, a lot to do and a lot to perfect. And as you pick up insights from folks like yourself, you know, utilize those and, and continue to, to, to grow the metric of being a, a better product manager. That is excellent. Thank you, Dave, for, for that insight. Yeah, I thought that was a great conversation with Dave. We've, we've heard of this before of others with frameworks, but Dave kind of stressed how important it is, right? With the frameworks he had about, you know, the 40-30-30, how he looks at yeah. it as like a venture capitalist, how he looks at, the, you know, the, the products he has, the portfolio, what, you know, what needs to be invested on. And then the framework he had about, you know, the, the growth team, what, you know, he sees them and how they're kind of moving the metrics to, to drive a certain, you know, ROI. And then the customer request one that, you know, how do you make sure your NPS or customer sat is high and you're, you're delivering, you know, product to support it and listen to your customer feedback. And then the, the innovation customer light, which I think is the one that, you know, is the one that's a little more uh, art than science, right? You have to kind of see the market, make some theories, come up and talk to potential prospects and customers, but not, you know, fall too much in that second bucket, bucket, but something that becomes more innovative and new that will delight customers. And that's, that's a good way of thinking of it, a good way to kind of frame those out and, and drive your, your, your roadmap from that. So Lucas, what'd, uh, yeah. what'd you, what'd you think? No, 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 I agree. I actually really enjoy that top top level down look of how to manage a larger product that's that's a benefit of of working with folks who are you know senior and and have a broader scope to to manage and I think you know it was important that it was agreed that really these are just guidelines right and they need to be adjusted it depends on the situation I think we've heard that before right it's none of this stuff is hard and fast rules it's just something that you you start with as as a baseline and then go from there so I think that was good the other thing that I like are those principles and honestly you know they, they sound important or lofty etc but sometimes they do come down to just simple things that provide just a clear direction for not just a PM, but the thing to remember is that the PM, as they've alluded to, is a glue that works with many other teams. And one of the things is when those principles are clear and clearly communicated, it actually helps the teams kind of help the PM, right? Because once mm -hmm. the PM sets, here are the rules, then everybody's like, okay, but remember, we had these principles that will adhere. So if we go talk to the PM, they'll probably bring those rules up again, and, and they can just now you know, follow those rules themselves, it really makes the job easier. It's sort of like, you know, help me help you sort of situation, right? That makes it more efficient. So I found that really works when in my job, if I explain the principles we're going to adhere to in this particular project to the entire team, then really I then find that the options provided to me are already somewhat pre-screened based on the principles communicated. It makes makes the job much more, much simpler. Now, obviously, you don't want to pick principles that maybe stifle innovation, right? Don't oh, yeah, have yeah. too many of them, or, right? Or and counter, so on and so on. counter principles. Yeah, ex exactly, yeah. right? Um, and honestly, sometimes principles do conflict, right? 100% backward compatibility and innovation can 
can sometimes be really hard to juggle yeah. between those. So anyway, that was my takeaway, something to, to think about. And I did like the whole non-user aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we know squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So that's all your customers that are complaining. But one of the, the interesting things about non-users is that that's where potential other opportunities are, the adjacencies to the business you're doing and potentially growth opportunities in terms of revenue and other products that you might have. And so, yeah, not, not focusing on those, you might be, you know, as uh, business people would say, leaving money on the table. There you go. <laughs> yeah, do not ignore those non-users. You, you know, you'll need a good upsell opportunity or a new, yep. you know, people who yep. enjoy your product. So exactly, exactly. And of course, the the other example principles make sense. Keep yeah. it simple and dr drive using metrics is, is, is all absolutely makes sense. Very, very strong principles and, and good, good guidelines. Well, those were my, my takeaways. Great, great discussion with Dave Bottoms. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If so, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and join us for next episode. Thank you.